not too long ago, Susan and I went to Greece to celebrate our 20th anniversary, and it was a, a once-in-a-lifetime trip for us that we've been looking forward to for, for uh, two decades, and it was amazing. And at this one point, we were sitting in this little cafe, and we were uh, looking out and uh, just enjoying the, just the gorgeous view of the Aegean Sea. And there was a lady there on the beach, and she had a selfie stick. She was taking pictures, and I mean, there's a million of, of uh, selfie sticks around. Uh, as you travel around the world, get some great photos and things. But what was interesting was the angle she was taking this picture was just her face in the sky. And I was watching as she was taking these photos, and she kept taking them, but she was holding the, the camera so low and smiling that I looked over and I said to Susan, I said, I'm pretty sure all these photos are just going to be of her smiling face and the sky. You can take those photos in your backyard. I mean, there's the gorgeousness of the Aegean Sea in front of her. There's the cliffs of Santorini behind her, but she's going to come back with all of these photos of her smiling and with the clouds. I mean, you could do that. You could do that anywhere. And it was, it was amazing. And, I, and uh, I kept watching, and Susan was elbowing me. She's saying, go over and help her. Go over and help her. And I was like, no, this is fun watching this. This is, this is incredible. And, uh, you know, we, we all have this thing about photographs. If you look at a group photo, the first thing that you kind of naturally do is you look for yourself in that photo. How do I look? Who else is seeing this picture? Um, a lot of times when you're deciding on a family Christmas card and the photos are going out or you're at a party or something and somebody's going to take a group picture and put, post it online, uh, you're kind of like, oh, hold on a second. You know, before anybody else sees that, you know, how are we look? I mean, it's just a natural thing. We all kind of do it. When we come to the scriptures, that very human, re- uh, that kind of very human reaction of, of always kind of looking for ourselves is very often naturally the way that we look at the scripture. Where am I in here? Uh, what does this scripture mean to me? But before we can really understand what the scripture means to us, we have to understand what the scripture means. And in order to do that, we have to interpret it well. And Jesus actually helps us out with this as we go to Luke 24 this morning. The text this morning is Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to read verses uh, 13 to 35 as we continue in this series about relentless love. And in, in God's relentless love, God's relentless pursuit of you by his great grace, by his great passion for you, the scriptures actually reveal that we're not at the center of the picture. We're in the picture, no doubt about it. We're in the family photo, no question. But we're not in the middle. We're not at the center. And when we go to the scriptures, we also find that we're not at the middle and we're not at the center. And this morning we come to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went to them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them said, one of them named Cleopas answered and said, are you the only visitor in all of Jerusalem? Who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the elders, they delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we hoped 
He was the one that would redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and they went to Jerusalem and they found the eleven who were with them gathered there saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. As we come to this passage today to see how Jesus helps us understand the scriptures. Here's the sermon in a sentence. The grace of Christ opens the scriptures, opens our eyes, and opens our hearts. And we're going to ask four questions of this passage this morning. We're going to ask the question, how did Christ open the scriptures? How did Christ open eyes? How does Christ open our hearts? And the fourth question, why does it matter? So first, let's look at how he opened the scriptures. In verse 21, You'll notice that the disciples had a plan that they hoped Jesus would fulfill. In verse 21, they said, Well, we had hoped that he had come to redeem us from Israel. In other words, get us out from the Roman oppression that was taking place at that time politically. They had political plans for Jesus. And what we discover is that God is not a mascot to human agenda. God wasn't a mascot to their agenda. He's not a mascot to our agenda. He's got this huge, massive, redemptive plan that he's kind of been moving forward from the beginning. And... This whole passage on the Emmaus Road that we just read, it takes place after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And the disciples are obviously distraught because their, their plan was too small. And the things they wanted God to do were too small. And so their hearts sunk into their feet. And we're very much like them. Whenever things are going on in our life that we were thinking, God, I'm pretty sure you would be up to delivering me from this, but it doesn't happen. Our heart can sink into our feet. We can we can find ourselves discouraged. And they were there, you know, looking at the cross, and as Jesus was on the cross being crucified by Rome uh, under the d direction of the, the uh, religious leaders at the time, the disciples thought this is the worst possible scenario, when really they were looking at the best possible scenario. I mean, that, that God's plan just is much, much greater and much, much bigger uh, but their interpretation was that it was national and that it was political, but God's plan is redemptive and eternal. And so they lived their lives, the disciples, under the pressure and the trials of Rome. So it was very natural to think God's plan is to remove my suffering and my trials. 
And you and I live under various pressures and trials, naturally speaking, in all of our lives. We all have various things that are frustrating to us and angering to us. and We suffer in different ways. There's hurts in our hearts. There's things that have taken place in our lives that have devastated us emotionally or physically or spiritually. There's relationships that have, that have broken down. Our bodies fail us. There's no end to the ways in which all of us in this room suffer in different ways. And so often we can think, well, in the same way the disciples thought, God's going to deliver me from this, and it's going to look like that. We can very much, you know, God's going to deliver me from my suffering, in my opinion, and it's going to look like this. And make no mistake about it, God has every intention and does, by his great grace, deliver us from suffering, give us otherworldly hope and peace. But it's bigger than we think, and it's broader than we think, and his, his, his agenda is much more glorious than, than we think. And so what I find in my own life is that more often than I'd care to admit, I actually want a God that agrees with me on all points, and then he answers my prayers the way I want them answered in the timing that I want them answered. That's really what I want from God. In fact, I don't want a God at all. I want a cosmic butler. And I think if you're honest, you'll find there's times where you don't actually want a God that you bow your knee to and that you worship. That you say, oh God, would you by your great grace and by your spirit give me a grace and a strength that transcends any circumstance of this life that I may go through this life with great joy and peace in my heart knowing that there's a, a redemptive eternal plan. I think if you're honest, you'll realize there's times, times in your life when you want a cosmic butler. And uh, so God's agenda, this is the good news, is that God's agenda isn't smaller than ours. It wasn't smaller than the disciples. They thought he was up to delivering them from Rome. He was up to delivering them from death. And it was much bigger. God's plan is infinitely larger and wiser and more loving and more gracious than ours. Our agendas are all temporal. You know, you've all got things on Monday you've got to deal with. You've all got frustrations in your You've all got things that, oh God, help me. And they're all temporal things. And God cares about all those things. And in his great grace, there's not a hair on your head that doesn't fall out that he doesn't notice. I mean, that's how much he loves you. That's how intimately God cares for you. That's how powerfully his grace goes, goes toward you. Yet, the plans that he has for your life and mine are infinitely greater. And so when we come to the scriptures, we can't look at them like that group photo. Or where am I in here? What is God saying? I've got a meeting on Tuesday at 1 o'clock, and what does the Scripture say? The Scripture has a lot to say about what God can do in you and through you to minister your peace so that you can engage in all the details of your life in a very redemptive way. We're going to get to this a little bit later. But His plan is massive, and it's beautiful, and it's glorious. And so, the Emmaus Road on the way to Jerusalem, it's a couple hours walk, and in a couple hours, from Emmaus to Jerusalem, Jesus basically goes back through Moses and all the, all the Scripture and he's showing them, I'm going to interpret the scriptures properly, which is to show you me and my grace and my love for you from Genesis through to Malachi. I'm going to show you the plan of God. And so Jesus gives us the lens for understanding the scripture, that it's primarily about him. And this is what he does. And so for 40 generations, from Abraham to the time that Christ is on the Emmaus Road doing this, he's showing how God patiently, through human history, did this gracious and this redemptive work is unfolding this grace. The primary theme of the scripture is Christ's substitution by rescuing grace. And then the secondary theme is the life that you and I get to live now on Monday when we go to work, in our marriages, with our parents, with our, uh, with our children, in our relationships. This, the primary theme is Christ's substitution. And then the secondary theme is this glorious and free life that I live 
fueled by that rescuing grace that's now reforming me. But that's secondary. But the disciples, the disciples' tendency is like our tendency. They were filtering everything Jesus ever said and did through their greatest need, their greatest perceived need. And so we can commit the same error by going to the Bible and saying, well, I'm going to filter this entire Bible through my perceived need. Jesus says, no, you, you actually filter the Bible through my great grace, my great love for you. That's actually going to be a game changer for you. And so in pre- preparation for this morning, I went to Amazon.ca and I started saying, you know, how many books are available on the things that we tend to care most about? If we were to say, if I was to, if I was to, after, you know, Redeemer's about a year and a half old now, maybe two years, if I was to say, you know what, we've talked about Jesus enough, I think everybody gets the gospel now. I mean, I think everybody here really understands the grace of Christ. So I don't really need to preach Jesus through the text anymore because you all get that. I've been, I've been pa- talking about Jesus every Sunday. So now I'm going to move on into the, the great life you can live as a result of his grace. We're going to focus on that. And we're going to do life better, you know, because of Jesus. If I was to do that, I thought to myself, how many books are actually available with great wisdom because God has dispensed his common grace in the entire world and there's people with great gifts and abilities and wisdom that they offer. And here's what Amazon.ca uh, taught me, at least on Friday. Maybe more books have been published since Friday. But there are, if you want a book on relationships, just how to do relationships better, marriage, sex, dating, you know what I'm saying? There are 390,801 books available right now on Amazon.ca on that. If you're saying, that's not my thing, really what I need is I need to come on Sunday mornings and I need to more about leadership. How do I lead in culture, and how do I lead in my community? There are 133,591 books dedicated to speaking about leadership. Uh, but if you say, no, that's not my concern. My, my concern is finances. How can I be better steward of my money? How can I use money? You know, all for God's glory, of course. How can I do more on the earth with my money, and how can I do more humanitarian, you know, beautiful things and love folks with finances? There are 707,774 books on finances which incidentally is double the amount of books available on marriage, but that's a sermon for another day. (laughs) Then there's, you say, my problem is parenting. My kids are driving me crazy. I just need the wisdom of of, uh, how can I be a better parent? There are 146,534 books on parenting. If you were to just get general about it and say, let's just talk about self-help, you know, just, and say, you know, I just need, I need some life coaching so that I can operate in, in wisdom, okay, there are 426,024 books under the, under the, the uh, banner of self-help. But here's the granddaddy of them all. Trumps all the other books available in those other categories. Marriage, bah! Parenting, psh! Leadership, psh! If you want a book on business, one million 840,439 books to help you do your business better. Now, the Bible gives godly wisdom on all these things. Has a lot to say about all these things. Will serve you greatly as you live to the glory of God under his law and flourish in all these things. But the Bible is not primarily about any of those things. Any of them. I just read it in Luke 24. Jesus goes, do you want to understand from Genesis to Malachi what this is about? Me. We gather on Sundays to marvel, to worship, to have our spirits lifted. Hey, if you need, uh, you know, wisdom, there's, and, and those books that are available there are 
many of them are probably brilliant. Because where do these people get all this wisdom from? From God's common grace. God gave them the wisdom. And so I don't want to downplay it like we don't come to God, you know, there's no wisdom literature in the Bible. And don't hear me say that we can't go to the Bible and hear how God's law, you know, uh, allows us to live redemptively in culture or, or, uh, or uh, be beacons of real great love and grace and light and integrity in marriage and parenting and, you know, business and all these things. Don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is that's not primarily, that's not even what this is about. And if we take the, the secondary theme of Scripture and make it the primary theme of Scripture, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not really going to be gathering to, uh, uh, and, and have our souls nourished because we're going to be narcissistic in our worship. We're going to be worship narcissists. We're going to come in on Sunday morning and go, you know, Paul keeps talking about Jesus and he's taking in the text and he's showing me the glory of Christ and the grace of Christ through the text and what he's done. But you know, I just really what I need is if he could just preach a sermon on how to deal with, you know, a seven-year-old girl who's struggling with this, I just, if I could just have a niche sermon on that, that would be really good for me this morning. You understand? This is where we just, that's where we go. That's what I do. That's what I've done. That's what, that's what you do. So Christ opens the scriptures by saying, hey, the Bible contains all kinds of wisdom that affects all those things, but it's not primarily about any of those things. Jesus explicitly says that the scriptures are about how he came to fulfill God's plan so that everything that's broken in your life by sin is going to be restored one day by God's grace. Everything that matters to you, your relationships, your kids, your business, your pets, your, the, your, your hobbies, your interests. I mean, everything under the sun falls under a banner that says it belongs to the Lord. And the good news about that is that everything that you care about on this planet Earth, God is restoring by His grace. The Bible doesn't have a coloring book, comic book ending where we just float around on clouds and play harps and we don't really do anything. God is restoring everything. That's just the trajectory of God's great grace and great love for you. And Jesus says, I'm at the center of restoring that so that you live to the glory of God in the presence of God in the way that God originally had attended. It's a, it's, it lifts our eyes out of the temporal, puts them squarely on the eternal. So that's how Christ opens the scriptures. Now, how did Christ open our eyes? How did he open their eyes? In verse 16, it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then in verse 31, it says their eyes were opened. The word in the Greek, it's a passive it's a passive Greek verb, which means that their eyes were restrained not because Jesus was, you know, had the Superman disguise and he put glasses on, and it's like, oh, we don't recognize him. It wasn't like, hey, you usually wear, you know, the white tunic with the red sash, but you really threw us off because you went with this whole beige number, and we didn't recognize Jesus on the road. Like, that's not what's going on here. This is a supernatural restraining of the eyes and a supernatural opening of the eyes. It's grace on display. It's a picture of how nobody sitting in this room got here because we're better than anybody else, because we're more open than anybody else, because we're more humble than anybody else, because we're more spiritually, you know, in tune than anybody. I mean, we are all here because God in his great grace opened our eyes as Christ was preached, as the gospel was preached. It's by his great grace. This is the, the beauty of it. It's what, what you see. They didn't, op they didn't figure it out. They didn't crack a code. God opened their eyes. You and I didn't figure it out and crack a code. That's the power of the gospel. As Christ has preached, the Spirit does this great saving work. It's amazing. Now, that, that truth, that it's God that opens our eyes to see Jesus, gives us great humility and confidence. 
humility for the reasons that I just said, that we didn't initiate our faith. So that was very humbling. But also great confidence because now we can share the gospel boldly, knowing that it's not others that need to initiate the faith. That we can share the gospel boldly gives us great confidence to give a defense for the hope that's in us, for why we believe in Christ, because it's not your great delivery. It's not your great, um, you know, presentation. I'll give you an example. The worst preacher in the Bible, who I think is Jonah, I'd be willing to argue that, I don't know. Jonah hates Nineveh, hates the city, thinks they're a bunch of sinners, they deserve to just burn in hell. He doesn't want to go. God tells him to go. God had no problem saving the sinners. He had a lot of problems with his preacher. Yeah. Which is a good lesson for all of us preachers. He's like, I have no problem with the city. My problem is really you. You think you're better than them. That's your problem. And so Jonah goes the other way. And of course, we know what happens. God arrests him and brings him back. And, and uh, the great fish barfs him up on the, on the shore three days later. And you know what Jonah's sermon is? You know how each Sunday I say the sermon in sentence? I guess Jonah, I guess I stole it from him because Jonah's sermon was a sentence. But it was a horrifying sentence. Jonah wasn't even trying. Read it. It's, it's Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. His whole sentence. Sermon in a sentence. Jonah just... Jonah gets up and he goes, Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed! Drops the mic. Because he's hoping God's just going to burn them all. And what does God do? He saves them all. He saves the whole city. They all repent. Oh, God. They turn to God. Worst sermon ever. Listen. The fact that God is the one that opens eyes is very humbling for us because we're not better than anyone. We're forgiven. We love him. But it also gives us great confidence and great boldness. When somebody says, you know, are you, did you check your brains at the door? Why are you a person of faith? Why do you believe in this God? Why do you believe? For us to very confidently give a defense for our hope. And, very, and, and, and you don't have to be theologians to do that. Just be like, you know what? Jesus Christ has done everything. This is what I believe. I believe that the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ has done everything required for me before God. That he lived perfectly, died, and he rose again according to the scriptures. I believe that. The power is not in you. The power is not in the messenger. It's in the message. God does this great saving work. All of you have different stories of how you came to faith. And for many, and for many of you, you can't point to a specific date and go, it was that day at that time. Some of you can maybe do that. But others of you, it was this long process and journey of you like the disciples on the Emmaus Road. They're on the Emmaus Road and Jesus is talking to them and their eyes get opened. And I'll, sh I'll show you in a minute how their eyes are opened. But for many of you, that's your story. You're on this Emmaus Road. You're in this spiritual journey of inquiry and God opens your eyes. And you're like, I believe. It's amazing and it's humbling. It gives us great confidence. Jesus rebukes them in verse 25. He says, Oh, you who are slow to believe. And what's interesting about his rebuke to the disciples is because they were with him for three years, they listened to his teaching, they watched him do the miracles, and so he rebukes their slow, slowness to believe. And uh, it's hard for them to believe that glory could come out of suffering, which is the message of the cross. It's really hard for us to believe glory could come out of suffering. We're North Americans. We're kind of like, I'll take the glory, pass on the suffering. <laughs> like, that's, that's how I think. Right? We don't want suffering. It's hard for us to believe that any glory could come out of suffering. And so Jesus rebukes them. But what's interesting about this is it's actually, a, from a historical literary point of view, it's a proof that this is not a legend, uh, but it's a historical account. I'll tell you why. If you look at uh, Greco-Roman ancient writing, or you look at Egyptian theology, if you look at competing writings from that time period in human history, whenever they presented gods, it was strength and glory. Whenever they presented the people that were associated with those gods, everything was painted in the most 
glorious light. Then you've got the gospel, and you've got the one professing to be God bleeding and dying on a cross like a criminal, and then you've got his disciples, not like champions of, you know, men, men of power for the hour. They're scared, they're confused, they don't get it, they're staring up into the sky, what's going on? They're just constantly lost. If you were trying to make up some sort of a legend in the ancient world uh, to get a bunch of people to believe a legend about a god, you would never write it this way. You would not write it like this. This is the opposite of how legends were written. So it doesn't even fit the genre. So this is one of the proofs uh, that, that uh, this, this is a historical account. Uh, never mind the fact that, that Rome and everybody in the first century had an open tomb problem. They come up with great reasons why the tomb was open, but everybody agreed it was open and it was empty. So that was their big, that was their big problem. And I had a lot of philosophical convos the last couple of weeks with some young people uh, who were saying there's a lot of horrors in the world and why are there these horrors in the world? And, and really what you see is that God is way more patient and gracious than we are. Everybody in this room would have nuked the world by now. Like there's not a person in here who would go home and look at the news feed and, or, or the things that you've even experienced in your life, the horrors and the pain and the tragedy that you've experienced in your life, there's not a person in this room that wouldn't have gone, that's it, by now. But God, in his otherworldly grace and love, has been patient throughout all of human history because through all of the sin and tragedy and suffering and, and horror, God is going to save people you and I would never save. He's going to draw people to saving grace in Christ alone that you and I would say, let them burn in hell. But God's going to save them. This is great grace. How did the eyes open? In verse 35, when Jesus broke the bread. He breaks the bread and he gives them the Lord's table and their eyes are opened. They were looking at grace. That's how our eyes are opened. Looking at grace. That, that meal is a meal of suffering. You can't even get bread unless something dies. And you can't get wine unless something's crushed and it bleeds. And so they're sitting here looking at grace, and God opens up their eyes, and they recognize and they see that it's Jesus. And this is totally intentional. Think about how many of these resurrection accounts are associated with food. God is a total foodie. He is. He's a foodie, and he's a party God. He's a God of celebration. All, all the resurrection accounts... Jesus is cooking breakfast, there's fish, and he's coming to the house, and they're eating food, and he's breaking bread and wine. God, okay, look at this. The Bible starts with a wedding in a garden in Genesis, and then the Bible ends with a wedding in a city in Revelation. And between the two weddings, you've got the greatest wedding planner in the universe, sparing no expense, making sure he gets all of us to the church on time through his blood, sweat, and tears, planning an eternal celebration. In the end in Revelation, the wedding celebration in the city ends with dancing and drinking and eating and celebration. This is the trajectory. This is where it's all going. This is the Christian faith. And what's amazing about it is that we get to gather week in and week out to celebrate that trajectory so that you, six days you're working and you're using your gifts and you're engaging the city and you're building businesses and you're loving your children and you're doing your marriages and you're doing all these things. Six days you're working at all that stuff to his glory. And then one day we come and we stop and we rest from all of our work and we rest in his work. 
and we remember where this whole thing is headed. So you can face it, you can enjoy all the, the joy in your life and you can face all the suffering in your life because you know that in the end there's a great restoration that's taking place because of Christ alone. So how does Christ open our hearts? In verse 32, the disciples say, after he reveals this, he says, did our hearts not burn within us when he opened the scriptures? This whole passage reveals the way God opens your heart, the way God opens every heart, is through the preaching of Christ and the bread and the cup. That's what Jesus gave them. I'm going to preach myself to you from Genesis to Malachi. I'm going to show you my grace, and I'm going to show you my grace again. I'm going to preach the redemptive gospel, the plan of God, and I'm going to break bread, and we're going to eat, and we're going to drink wine, and we're going to celebrate. And that's how hearts were opened and are open. That's why we gather week in and week out so that Christ can be preached, so that we eat and drink. See, the unbelievers, those family and the friends, those who over the next months and years and decades that the Lord draws here that come to saving faith in Christ, they need the gospel as their entrance into faith. But you and I continually need the gospel as the power by which we live out our faith. And the way that faith comes is the way that faith continues to come. And so this is why we, we gather and we celebrate and we preach Christ each and every week. It's because the word and the sacrament are God's ordinary means of grace. It's how you are continually nourished. It's how your spirit gets nourished. We don't want to take the Bible and just make it one of those other books that are available on Amazon. Right? If you need to do leadership better or marriage better or children better or business better, go get a book. There's lots available and they're all probably amazing. And of course, we go to God's word, which his wisdom transcends all worldly wisdom, and the word of God can give us wisdom to engaging in all those things. But that's you're not gathering here on Sunday mornings, so you can be helped a little bit more on Monday. Yeah, that's too small. Jesus Christ coming to you through the word, through his sacraments, your spirit begins to... Uh, be sealed in that truth and that be that saving grace that saved you it begins to reform you and that's a game changer on your marriage and your parents and your kids and sex and business and everything else because of that great work that god does and what does that open heart want to do by god's grace increasingly live to the glory of the one who who saved it. what did these disciples do what when, when god opened their eyes and their hearts and the scriptures what did they do they went from timidity to fear the early church in Acts uh, chapter 4, they started selling off their, their liquidating stuff to take care of the poor people in the church. What did they do in Acts chapter 5? You know, they were, getting, uh, they were getting arrested and getting beat up and getting thrown in jail. But they're like, we just gotta preach, we've just got to preach the goodness of Jesus. They were very bold. What happened? Why did, why did these disciples go from let's hide behind closed doors and lock our doors to let's be, we're okay with being martyrs? How do you make sense of that? You can't make sense of it except for the grace of God, the truth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and their desire to share the glory of Christ, which is grace for sinners. Right? This is what happens. As God opens hearts, it, what it reveals is that God opens our eyes and our hearts, and then His grace ends up coming up through our hands. The life of love and sacrifice that you live towards one another, that's not the gospel, but that's what the gospel does. It's what it produces. In the same way that Paul would write to Corinth and go, I'm blown away by what God is doing. I'm blown away by, by you guys, honestly. I talk to Dan McDonald regularly, and he asks me how the church is doing, and I share. I'm always hearing practical ways that you folks are loving each other and caring for each other. We don't do that perfectly, and we fail. And if you stay in this church long enough, everybody in here will, you know, disappoint somebody else at some point. Because we're 
a church full of sinners saved by grace, covered in God's grace, and we're going to hurt each other. But you want to know something? I'm amazed by it. Paul writes to Corinth. He goes, the Macedonians are poor. They're broke. They are more broke than university students. That's how broke they were. And when they heard about the need in the church, they gave out of their poverty. That's what they did. But you know, I hear stories here all the time. Driving people to doctor's appointments, taking time and taking folks out, visiting the sick, going to the hospital. This is what you guys are doing. I heard last week of some, some, someone was unable to take care of some needs around their house, and some others of you were in their driveway on your knees pulling weeds out, you know, for hours. Uh, you've been financially generous to establish this church and plant it in KW forever. You've given your, you could use your money on other things. You've made sacrifices financially to, make, to build this church. You've done that. I could go on and on. There's all of these things that you're doing. Those things that you're doing are not the gospel. But they're what the gospel produces. That's what it did in the early church. That's what it does in us. Because we're actually free now. I don't need all my time and all my money to revolve around me because I'm actually free. Because this life actually isn't all there is. Free to give my life away. Free to love others. Why does it matter? I'll close with this. You know what matters? Because when God opens our eyes and the scriptures and our hearts by his grace, we're liberated from needing our plans to work out in order to have fulfillment and peace. Because our lives get swept up in his plan that he's working out, which gives us ultimate fulfillment and ultimate peace. If that Emmaus Road account in Luke 24, if that was just a legend, if Christ never rose from death, then this life is all there is, and in the end it's just darkness and death, and everything we say matters doesn't really matter. It, uh, it, it, it doesn't objectively matter. It matters because we say it matters, but then after we're all dead, another generation can rise up behind us and say, your values don't matter to us, so we're, we're just going to live in an, a sliding scale of... I mean, it doesn't really matter. During the course of your lifetime, there were things that when you were five years old really mattered to culture and society, and today they don't. And so who's to say that the things you say are truth and valuable today really ultimately matter 100 or 200 years from now? They don't. Because after you and I are dead, another generation can arise and can decide that what we held as valuable and true isn't, and they can erase all of it. Right? If, it, if there is no God and there's no resurrection and there is no Christ and there's no Emmaus Road, and this account I just read to you is fiction, that's just, that, I'm just, that's just critical... That's just critical, rational thinking according to a humanist worldview. But if we apply critical, rational thinking to the Christian worldview, then what we recognize is, now hold on a second, if there is a creator, and we are his creatures, and he has given us laws that allow for our lives to flourish, then everything that we do on Monday, it does matter. Because God is restoring something, and now you and I get to image the creator, and we get to be a part of that restoration. We get to be a part of loving the city and loving our neighbors and standing for things and standing against uh, 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 things that are against human flourishing, against love, love towards our neighbors. We, we, get to, we get to live in this way to the glory of God. Not because we subjectively decided that it's true or we subjectively decided that it matters, but that the Emmaus Road happened. And so therefore it's true. And that Christ rose from death. And so the reason that Christ gave for you and I to gather on Sunday mornings is shockingly simple, church. We marvel at the Father's redemptive plan as the Son opens the Scriptures and the Spirit opens our hearts. And so we get to eat and drink, and in just a minute we're going to eat and drink because God is restoring everything by His grace. You get to enjoy every good thing in your life because it's just a taste 
of the eternal life to come. And you get to have great grace for every sorrow that's in your life. Because it's just a reminder that God is eradicating all suffering and all sorrow in the gospel through Christ. The grace of Christ opens the scriptures, opens our eyes, and opens our hearts. Let's pray.